Well, greetings from Western Pennsylvania. It's good to be with you. Uh, it sounds like I'm going to have to make a trip in for some meat canning. I'm not, I'm not sure. <laughs> uh, so when I was asked to have these meetings with an emphasis on missions, my heart clenched with a little fear and some self-doubt because I don't view evangelism as one of my strong points. I view it as one of my weaknesses. And when I went through the ordination process, I, I brought this concern up to those who were interviewing me, but as you can see, they didn't let me off the hook. Um, so I admit, I'm no bastion of strength in these matters. And I would like to approach the sub, this subject from a different angle, from a position that we as Anabaptists, as Mennonites, tend to perceive as a position of strength. And I believe in many respects, it is. And this morning, I would like to talk to you about our lives being our witness. In the past several years, I have heard two men from completely different denominations talk about how marriage is one of the key ways that we as Christians can demonstrate the power of a life transformed by the gospel. We live in an increasingly confused world, a world that needs to see what it means to be male and what it means to be female, what a life of fidelity and sacrificial love look like, and as the world gets increasingly dark, people who are faithful within marriage will shine even more brightly. And the thought of both of these men was that in living a life of selflessness and faithfulness within marriage, that people will be increasingly interested in the how and the why, giving us an open door to share the gospel. Now, I'm not talking about marriage this morning, but I would like to take that line of thinking and stretch it beyond marriage to include the entirety of the Christian walk. And in doing so, I'd like to draw your minds to two groups of people in the Old Testament, which has given rise to my title, which is Nazarites, Rechabites, and Mennonites. So the Israelites... In time, well, Abraham was called out. We're, you're going through it in your Sunday school lesson. He was called out by God. And the Israelites, his descendants, were set-apart people. They were set apart from the huma rest of humanity. They were God's chosen people. And out of those people, the Israelites, there were other people called, like the priests and the prophets, they were set apart even from the Israelites. And another group, and if you, if you look at Numbers chapter 6, it talks about the Nazarites. The whole chapter is about the Nazarite vow. And we're not going to look at it, uh, but in that chapter, you will find that they were supposed to, when they took this vow... They were supposed to abstain from anything from the vine. So there was no grapes, um, no raisins, no wine, no grape juice, no grape-flavored lollipops, whatever it was, 
nothing from the vine. They weren't supposed to touch dead bodies, and there was no cutting of the hair. Now, this vow was typically short-term, and it was voluntary. It was short-term and voluntary. Now, they were separated. They were not separated from the people. They were separated unto God by choice. And there are several. Samson would be one. I believe John the Baptist was a Nazarite and possibly Samuel. So three that we know of. Now, interestingly enough, I don't believe any of those chose, chose it. They were given it by their parents, as how I understand it. The other group of people is the Rechabites. How many of you are familiar with the Rechabites? I want to see a raise of hands. That was pretty mediocre. <laughs> so, if you want to read about the Rechabites, you turn, we're not going to turn to it, Jeremiah chapter 35. And these people were of Canaanite descent. And some of them would have been direct descendants of Moses' father-in-law. And in Jeremiah chapter 35, you will find that God told Jeremiah to bring these descendants of Rechab into the house of the Lord and offer them wine. And he did, but they refused. And they refused because their ancestor Jonadab, and if you don't know who Jonadab is, if you remember the story of Ahab, or I'm sorry, not Ahab, Jehu, going to wipe out the house of Ahab. He's in his chariot, driving furiously, right? And he meets Jonadab, and Jonadab joins him on the chariot. Jehu was like, you want to see my, see my zeal for the Lord? Jump on. That was Jonadab, okay? So Jonadab had told his children that they were not supposed to drink wine, they were not supposed to plant crops of any sort, and they were supposed to live in tents so that they might live along in the land. Now, I don't know if you know your Old Testament history or not, but Jonadab was over 200 years before this incident in Jeremiah chapter 35. So they lived a life, a life set apart by choice. They were an example of obedience to Judah. Judah were rebellious against God. And Jeremiah sets this group of people before them and says, I have told you again and again and again to obey the Lord and to follow him, and you continually refuse. Whereas these people were told one time by their ancestor 200 years before, and they're still obeying. And as a result, if you look at the end of the chapter, they were blessed. So, the Nazarites and the Rechabites were visual examples to the rest of society. Were they better? Were they more holy? No, I, I don't think so. If you remember, this was by choice, 
Not by command. This was not something that the rest of the people had to do. They made a choice to do things differently from the rest of society. And at least in the case of the Nazarites, they were separated unto God. And I don't know what the case with the Rechabites was. And the passage that um, Norman read, Amos chapter 2, if you were paying attention, verses 11 and 12 say this, And I raised up some of your sons, and he's talking to Israel now, the northern tribe of Israel. I raised up some of your sons for prophets and some of your young men for Nazarites. Is it not indeed so, O people of Israel, declares the Lord? But you made the Nazarites drink wine, and you commanded the prophets, saying, You shall not prophesy. So they, they told the prophets to shut up, and they told the Naz- or they compromised the Nazarites. I don't know how they did it. I don't know if they forced them or what. But did they try to compromise them? Why? Was it because they were weird? I don't think so. It's because their lives were a visual representation of what dedication to God looks like, which convicted them of their sin. And so they tried to compromise them. We, as Anabaptists, are different. And we're different by choice. And yes, I realize most of us were born into this tradition. So were the Rechabites. We are different from most of Christianity. And maybe some of us wear this as a badge of honor, possibly with our noses in the air. Maybe some of us cringe and feel like we're weird or cultish. And you want to know something? Traditions like ours can be both of those things. John the Baptist dressed weird, ate weird, and lived weird. At least I think it's kind of strange. But he chose to do these things that no one else was required to do out of his dedication to God. And people flocked to him. Was it because he did weird things? Well, it might have been part of it. But that's not all of it, not even close. It's because he was filled with the Spirit of God. His life, as strange as it was, drew glory to God. I have already mentioned that the concept of our lives as, wit- as a witness is perceived as a strength. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12, it says this, Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. I came across a quote in, in my studies that says this, Loyalty can lead to fanaticism. Caution can become timidity. Freedom can become license. Confidence can become arrogance. Humility can become servility. All these are ways in which strength can become weakness. And I would like to remind you of the story of when the the kingdoms of Israel and Judah split. The kings Rehoboam and Jeroboam. And when the northern tribes split off the southern kingdom, what happened? You remember? 
Jeroboam set up a two, two golden calves, one at the north end of the kingdom and one at the south. Do you remember why? Because he knew if they went down to Jerusalem to worship, that they would again be reunited. So he compromised. He compromised for the sake of comfort and convenience. And he compromised for the sake of control. Now, there are some things that we as Mennonites do that the rest of society mostly does not do. Things we do that are based on scriptural principles. And I'm going to talk about a couple of these things. The first one is dress, which is based on the scriptural principle of modesty. So we we dress in a certain way. And my hat's off to you, ladies, because you take the brunt of this one. I would like to bless you for your modesty and your desire to draw attention to God and not to yourselves. Well done. Now, the apostles, to my knowledge, never address men and how they dress, but they do women. And it's not because they're misogynistic. A pretty popular word these days. It is because there are certain realities surrounding women in dress, which I'm not going to get into this morning. Another thing, and this is kind of in my next section, but it's so closely tied to dress, I, I want to say it here, and that is the veiling. And this is a command that we practice, but most of Christianity no longer practices, emphasis on no longer, because wide swaths of Christianity have practiced this in the past. And this is a practice that draws attention like nothing else does, and you ladies know it. So are we, men and women, prepared to use that as an opportunity to share the truth of God's word. And there's all kinds of, and you know the questions, they, what is that weird little hat your wife is wearing? Or, or whatever the questions they ask. There's all kinds of places you can go with that. You can go to Genesis and you can talk about God's order of authority. You can go to how men are supposed to love their wives as Christ loved the church. There's lots of things that we can do to share the gospel in a question like that. So men, how are we doing in supporting our wives, our sisters in Christ on this one? Are we somehow showing identity with them? Are we leaving them alone to practice this? The principle of modesty is not limited to women. I have a story from when I was probably in my very early 20s, and I was kicking against tradition, as we tend to do when we're young. And so I was having a conversation with somebody in authority over me about the plain suit. And 
So I guess the question came up, why? Why, why do we do this? And his, the reason he said he did it was this very reason, to identify with his wife. And I thought it was a little bit of a silly argument then, because he only wears his suit to church, right? And that's the only place I tend to wear my suit. But our wives wear their coverings everywhere, right? But I understand his point, and I'm sure that's not the only way he identified with his wife. It is one, what are ways we can identify with our wives in this? So traditionally, we have standards of practice that either now or in the recent past, I did not look at your standards of practice. I don't, I'm sure they're pretty close to ours. So it, it, it has said or does say things about loud colors, jewelry, logos and name brands, bill caps, shorts, things like these. And we may scoff at some of these things. But I think we can rest fairly certainly assured that these things were not intended to make life difficult or complicated. They were put up as safeguards. Why? Because it is a recognition that we were so easily entrapped by status, by elitism, and by a desire to attract attention to me rather than to God. Now, the rest of Christianity, Christianity may not practice it, but the intent was that we could live long in the land. Like the Rechabites. And we are changing. I'm not saying we should go back and change things. That's not my point. But to ask ourselves the question, why are we changing? And so just to make us all uncomfortable, the holy kiss. Do you do it? And I'm not here to defend it. That's not my point here this morning. But we're losing it, right? Why? Is it because it's the right thing to do? Or is it because it's the easy thing to do? And just so you know, it makes me uncomfortable too. So are we doing it for comfort and convenience? Are we conforming to the world's mold or to the image of God? What do people see when they look at me? Do they see a people who are striving and bickering? Or do they see somebody who is molded in the image of God? What do people see when they look at me. The next thing I want to talk, that something is very traditional to Anabaptists for the most part, is voting. In general, we have taken a stand against it. And there have been elections, however, when many Mennonites, Amish, have voted. They voted because they felt they had, because they had to, because they had no recourse, and because of a fear of what might happen 
if they don't. So they compromised what they may have said for the sake of control. I will plant my flag here. I will take my stand and go no, no farther into that realm, not because I believe it's a sin, but because I believe it is a wrong focus and can distract us from the true purpose of why we're here. And that is to serve Christ. John chapter 9, verse 39 says, And Jesus said, For judgment I am come into this world, that they which see not might see, and that they which see might be made blind. John chapter 10, verse 10, The thief cometh not, but for to steal, to kill, and to destroy. I am come that they might have life, and that they might have it more abundantly. John chapter 12, verse 46, I am come, a light into the world, that whosoever believeth on me should not abide in darkness. That's why Jesus has come. And so back into the world of politics. So we have the left trying to save the world from the, or the U.S. from the right, right? And we have the right trying to save the U.S. from the left. And some of us may lean one direction or the other. But the only one who saves is Jesus. The throne is occupied, the White House is occupied on purpose. And that purpose is God's. And no matter how that throne was gained from a human perspective, no matter what man's plans are for placing the person on the throne, in the end, God is in control. And his will will be accomplished. Hosea chapter 8 verse 4 says this, They made kings, but not through me. They set up princes, but I knew it not. And he's referring to Jeroboam taking the throne. And you will, if you remember, God predicted that it would happen. He said Jeroboam's going to take that throne and split the kingdom. But it says that the people did not seek his will, and that was both sides. Neither side sought a remedy. They did not seek the will of God. And certain people think that Trump stole the election, and certain people think that Biden stole the election. Is it not indeed so? That they cheated their way into office. Let it go. It may be true, but they're there. And they're placed there by God. And if you remember Roman history, who was on the throne when Nero, <laughs> yes, Nero, Nero was on the throne, when Paul was writing to obey those and rule over you. Nero did more than cheat, by the way. He had all kinds of rumors of murder surrounding him in his ascent to power. Okay. Do we want good policies? Do we want men in office who make wise decisions? Yes, we do. 
So we go out and vote for a person who we think aligns with our ideals, even though we know politicians frequently change what they say after they're in office. So Paul gives us another option, and that is prayer, which is more powerful, right? Right. First Timothy chapter 2, verse 1 to, well, a couple verses here. Verse 1, I exhort therefore that first of all, supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings, and all who are in authority. Are you giving thanks? Am I giving thanks? I get grumpy too. <laughs> that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. He tells us what to pray for and who to pray for. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who will have all men to be saved. That's why he's here. That's why we're here. And to come to the knowledge of the truth, I will therefore that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. And men, this one's on you. Because it's addressed to the men, and it's not addressed as in men as in mankind, it's addressed as in men as male. And I think the reason is, is because we want to take control. Like Peter, we want to grab our sword or our ballot and go make things right. But we need to trust him who is in control. And just as a side note, he, Paul started out that by saying, firstly, or something like that. Do you know what the second thing is? how women dress. What do people see when they look at me? Now, there are things that we as Anabaptists do that a broad range of Christianity does not. Things that we do that are distinctive. I mentioned one already, and that's the veiling. One more is non-resistance. And I would like to remind you of the Russian Mennonites. They left Europe and went to Russia because Catherine the Great had promised them land. And she promised them that they would not have to fight in any wars. And they became very prosperous. And they began to look down on, and I'm painting a broad picture, I'm sure they weren't all like this, began to look down on and despise the native population around them. And when the Russian Revolution came, I think that was the war, they took up their arms to protect themselves and their stuff. Well, how are you going to respond when they come for your stuff? Because they're coming someday. You can rest assured. Jesus said they're coming. I don't know when it's going to be. It could be a lifetime from now. I don't know. How are you going to respond? So when someone takes advantage of you, 
in some way, how do you respond? When they cut you off in traffic, what do you do? I know how I tend to respond. (laughs) When someone rips you off, what is your response? When someone wounds you with your words, what are you going to say in response? When people look at me, what do they see? Now, there are some things that Christians everywhere must practice. All Israelites, whether they were prophet, priest, Nazarite, king, or just a common person, are required to follow the law of God. And so it is today, whether we're Mennonite or Baptist or whatever stripe we may be, we are required to follow the law of God. John chapter 13, verse 34 says this, A new commandment I give unto you that ye love one another, as I have loved you that ye also love one another. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And great portions of the New Testament are dedicated to describing what that looks like. John chapter 15 verses 12 to 13 says, This is my commandment that ye love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. So what does this love look like? Is it sacrificial? I'm sorry, it is sacrificial. It says, I will lay down my pride. I will give up my rights. I will sacrifice my life for my brother. So when you talk ill of me, I will encourage you. When you hurt me, I will bind your wounds. When you belittle me in front of others, I will make you look good. When you tear me down, I will build you up. When you lift yourself up in pride over me, I will serve you with all the love I can muster. If you falsely accuse me, I will... Give up my pride, my ill feelings, and I will bless you. I will accept these things with grace and humility. I will give up my pride and my ill feelings and bless. I will not be full of pity for myself, but I will rise up and by the grace of God, I will, like Christ, offer myself to be your doormat and let you wipe the mud of your anger and disillusionment on me so that you can see him through my response. I will return good for evil because it is through this that evil is defeated. Can you say that's you? Because you're going to find yourself on one side of that or the other, right? So at some point, you're going to have to be the one encouraging. And at some point, you're probably going to be the one saying something you shouldn't. And it's because of this that a life of love is also a life of repentance and confession. James chapter 5, verse 16 says, Confess your faults one to another. One to another. We tend to just confess to God which is okay. 
But if you're really struggling with something and it's kicking your tail, I think you need to say something to somebody else. Let go of your pride and confess. This life of love sacrifices the things we would do for the things that we should do. This life of love extends mercy and forgiveness because we recognize that we too are sinners. This life of love permeates every aspect of our lives, our marriages, and every other relationship, our finances, businesses, the things we think, and the things we do when no one is looking. We do these things because it is the right thing to do. We do these things because God said so. We do these things because we are being changed. We do these things to draw all men unto him. What do people see when they look at me? And so we're thinking about this in light of spreading the gospel. And we need people like the prophet Amos who left their homes or leave their homes to preach the gospel to people who have no interest in hearing. We need people like Jeremiah who go to great lengths to speak the word of God to their own people who refuse to heed. We need people like Jonah, as flawed as he was, to go to a foreign land, the land of the enemy, and tell them of the cross. We need people to make great sacrifice. And I hope and pray that there are some young people here that are willing to make this sacrifice. And I hope there are parents here who are willing to let their children go. Because it's not an easy thing. Today, however, the message for, is for the rest of us. Those who stay in our home, at home, in our home communities, and have businesses, and raise families, and do all the things that most people do. And so, when Ivan asked me to have these messages, one of the questions he gave me to kind of direct my thinking was this. How do we live well in our home communities in ways that are decidedly stretching? When we choose to walk in the light of God's word, we live a life of service, of sacrificial love, of repentance, of crucifying the flesh, it's going to cost you something. It might be financially. It might be relationally. It might be your, cost you your pride. It might cost you your time. Do you need to be any more stretched? <laughs> I think it's pretty stretching. So our purpose as the people of God is to, as it says in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And believers, knowing what sort of people we were, and seeing what sort of people we are becoming, verses 10, 11, and 12 in Orion's paraphrase, and even if some people mock and speak evil, which they will, they will, by your good works, which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation. Then, 
when people are drawn to us, we will, like Paul and Barnabas, seek to turn their attention to God, who made heaven and earth and the sea and all things that are therein. And we will be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh a reason of the hope that is in you. With gentleness and respect. We seek to bring him glory. We seek to be more like him. And as we seek, we dig into his word. We check ourselves with it. And I'm sorry, we check ourselves by it and align ourselves with it. We let its light shine into all our dark places so that we will be transformed into his likeness. And when God's word is taught and when God's word is preached, we are there. When there is a time of worship and prayer, we prioritize. We treat the Sabbath as a holy day and not a holiday. We do these things not out of legalism, but out of love for God and his people, right? Yes. If we are not doing these things, when the, people, when the world looks at us, all they are going to see is a reflection of themselves. As conservative Anabaptists, we have been given an incredible heritage which has its own set of strengths and weaknesses. Let's not take pride in it. Let us not, like the Sneetches, who because they had stars, all the Sneetches would brag, all the star belly Sneetches would brag, we're the best kind of Sneetch on the beaches. And with their snoots in the air, they'd sniff and they'd snort. We'll have nothing to do with the plain belly sort. Let's not take pride in it. Let's also not be ashamed or apologize for it. And let us not, like the plain belly sneeches, be moping and doping alone on the beaches, just sitting there wishing their bellies had stars. So like the Rechabites, we have been given a heritage. But it is not an end. Because if it is an end, all it will be is illegalism, Phariseeism, and externalism. That's all it's going to be. But it is a means by which to glorify God. My hope and my prayer is that our set-apartness would be an example of obedience and dedication to our Savior so that people would be drawn to him. First Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 9-12 through 12 says this, But as touching brotherly love, ye need not that I write unto you. For ye, are, for ye yourselves are taught of God to love one another. 
and indeed ye do it toward all the brethren which are at Macedonia. But we beseech you, brethren, that ye increase more and more in that love, and that ye study to be quiet and to do your own business and to work with your own hands as we commanded you, that ye may walk honestly toward them that are without, and that ye may have lack of nothing. What do people see when they look at me? Let's kneel for prayer.